0: The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Lord, minister to those who are suffering through this sermon. I pray that you'd put healing salve on the raw places. For the rest of us, God, I pray that you would use this sermon to prepare us for the day of suffering, We would never doubt your goodness and your approachability. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This is our second Sunday together in the book of Job, and today we're going to focus in on the person of Job himself, and especially on how he was honestly suffering. He didn't try to hide or deny or whitewash or manipulate the situation. Instead, he clung to God, and he argued with God. But as we continue to talk a lot about suffering, I just want to acknowledge that many of you may not feel ready to do that, uh, or you may be skeptical that anything said here could possibly make a difference. I've been around this church long enough. I've been around churches in general long enough to know that probably some of you have suffered or are suffering horrendous things. And so I, I can just imagine that, you know, someone might be saying in their head, what the hell does this pastor think he knows about suffering? And that's fair. It's true. I can concede that I likely have not experienced the depths of suffering that some of you have. But there will always be the testimony of other Christians who have suffered to that extent and more. And 1 Peter 5 says that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So you are not alone because Jesus resonates with your suffering, and the world, the Christians around the world, can resonate with your suffering. But thankfully, we're not here just to hear from my perspective or my experiences. We're here to hear from God's Word, and His Word transcends any person's reality, mine or yours. So the question we're pondering today is, how are we to respond when seemingly senseless suffering comes? The suffering that Job had endured was very, very intense. His whole livelihood had been destroyed. His servants had been slaughtered. His ten children had died when a, a roof collapsed in a freak windstorm. And he'd been struck with a horrid skin disease. And so today we'll consider some ways that Job first does not respond, how does he not respond, and then we'll end with the way that he does respond, which is a way that God commends. Now, there is another way altogether that we're not going to consider today, and that's um, what Job's wife suggests. Curse God and die. We'll look at that next week, but this week we'll only be considering paths that claim to still honor God. And um, the path that Job actually does take, the mark of a truly righteous person in suffering, we're going to see is a transparent wrestling for the blessing of God, a wrestling with God for the blessing of God. And our theme verse <clears throat> that, that really summarizes Job's whole response is chapter 13, verse 15. It says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. So how are we to respond when seemingly senseless suffering comes? And, and to start with, how are we tempted to respond? First, I want to tell you, don't shut down in fatalism. Five words that I hate to hear when we're talking about suffering, and we all do this. It is what it is. It is what it is. In other words, no need to think about it, nothing to do about it. Let's just shut down, put our armor on until the pain passes, But see, this approach, it shuts out other people. They can't really weep with you because they have no idea the extent of your pain. But much more importantly, fatalism shuts out God. It treats God like an unapproachable and arbitrary tyrant. Now, Job does flirt with fatalism in a couple of spots. I mean, how could you not drift in that direction when it feels like your whole world is falling apart? He says to God, You've granted me life and steadfast love and your care is preserve my spirit, yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. In other words, God, you've been really good to me for years, but all along you've just been setting me up for a heartfall. Or in the passage we read this morning, Job says, "But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires that he does? For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in His mind. Therefore, I am terrified. At his presence. When I consider I am in dread of him. So, fatalism like this, it fully acknowledges the sovereignty of God, but it loses sight of his goodness amid the pain. And and so, Job, whose heart is utterly devoted to God, he actually grows for a time completely terrified of God. For Job, though, this fatalism doesn't last long, and he presses in to God again with fervent prayers and arguments. But what about you when pain comes? Do you retreat into a it-is-what-it-is sort of existence? If we're stuck in the rut of fatalism, how can we get out of it? Certainly there's no better realization of how God isn't arbitrary than to remember his provision for us at the cross of Christ. French philosopher Blaise Pascal noted that the knowledge of God without knowing man's misery Causes pride. But the knowledge of man's misery without knowing God causes despair. The knowledge of Jesus Christ constitutes the perfect course, because in Him we find both God and our misery. So escape fatalism by looking at the cross of Christ. Job moves from a fatalistic longing for death in chapter 3 to instead wanting to understand and to reconcile to God. So first, don't shut down in fatalism. Second, don't flail about to appease or to bribe God. And this is essentially jumping to the conclusion that, you know, God is doing this to you to get something from you. And therefore, if you can just guess that thing and correctly give it to him straight away, then maybe the pain will stop. Maybe it's a certain sin that he's punishing, or or maybe it's some duty he wants you to perform that you've been neglecting. Now, I do want to admit that actually there could be a grain of truth to this approach. Remember, I'm categorizing Job's suffering as senseless suffering. It could be, though, that when suffering comes into our lives, it's not senseless, but it's actually a form of discipline from the Lord. There are other parts of Scripture that talk about that. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can probably think about people or maybe you can remember a season in your own life where someone was running headlong after sin, numb to the consequences, And God graciously stopped them by blocking their way with suffering. He does that sometimes. Psalm 119.71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted, that I might learn your decrees. So when suffering comes, it's always good, first thing, to pray, Lord, is there some sin that you're getting after here? And repent of it, turn from it if anything comes to mind. And it'll likely be an obvious and established pattern in your life that the Holy Spirit has been warning you about for some time. But if there's nothing like that, I mean, we all sin each day. Our hearts are never completely pure. So we need to remember God isn't some cruel and nitpicky schoolmaster. If our suffering seems unrelated to, to any patterns of sin, if neither our own reflection or the feedback of those who know us best can see anything blatant that God would be getting after, then it probably is just suffering and not discipline. Now, Job didn't claim to be perfect. He prays in chapter 13, How many are my iniquities? Make me know my transgression and my sin. For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. In the next chapter, he prays to know God's merciful care again. He says, For then you would number my steps, you would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed in a bag, you would cover over my iniquity. So Job knows that he has sin that needs to be covered. But the disparity between his massive suffering and the relative unoffensiveness of his lifestyle, it seems disproportionate according to how God deals with the rest of humanity. And we know from God's vantage point that that's also true for Job. Three times in the first chapters, Job is described as blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So he doesn't have hidden secrets. He doesn't have stubborn patterns of sin. In fact, chapter 29, Job there is reminiscing about good patterns of righteousness in his, in his life. And I encourage you to read chapter 29. I wish that that catalog of loving one's neighbor could be said of me. Job was a righteous dude. But even though he is a righteous sufferer, his friends try to get him to just confess something, just get God off your back. And all three of them, in turn, insinuate that Job just needs to repent of the sin he must be hiding, and then he will know God's favor again. But Job doesn't flail about to invent a solution. In chapter 27, Job replies, As God lives, who has taken away my right, And the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. As long as breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away integrity from me. Job doesn't try to make deals with God, like if you restore me and then I'll change in this way, I'll do this or that for you. No, God doesn't want our negotiation prizes, He wants our hearts. So don't treat God like a terrorist who's holding your life hostage until you pay a ransom. He's your creator, your king. For, your, for his part, he's your friend. Now, you may have sin to confess, and you should do that. You should be first on the list. You may have ways that you want your life to change because this time of suffering has helped you to reflect some. That's good. That's good. But it would be wrong to think that new sacrifices will somehow get God off your back. More than likely, your suffering is about much more than that. And so you need to be concerned less with what does God want from me and more concerned with where is God in the midst of all this pain. I need him, but he seems far. I want his presence, but all seems dark. Where is God, the only one who makes life worth living? That's what he wants from you. Sincere devotion, regardless of the circumstances. A third lesson from Job. Don't slip into a pretend piety where all people see from you is this facade of forced happiness and peace. Another way to say this is don't try to be holier than Jesus, who we read about displaying sorrow and grief and dread and agony. You've also got to realize that when you're suffering and you just grin and bear it like that and you have a fake smile pasted on, no one believes you. We all think we're better actors than we actually are. But also this approach compromises our integrity, and it's it's the integrity that Job was commended for. Job does not feign happiness as if it were a believer's duty to put on a smile. He doesn't work to cultivate a happy social media profile before word gets out of his misery. He doesn't give a rip about how he's perceived by other people, and neither should we. So if you're out to impress your neighbors or other people in the church, you'll never love them as you ought to and you certainly won't be able to receive any meaningful personal ministry from others in the midst of your suffering. Job's response is the opposite of pretend peace. He's a hot mess. He doesn't grin and bear it. He says, Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. He's walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. So the very fact that statements like this are in Scripture shows that just because someone can't state their faith calmly or rationally in the midst of suffering, that doesn't mean that there's no faith. There is a brand of Christianity that's shallow and trite and happy-clappy. It would have Jesus singing a praise chorus at Lazarus' grave. Easy triumphalism. And if we take just the first two chapters of Job, we could conjure up a message like that. Job suffered... Job trusted, so can we. But that's not the book of Job. It goes on and on and on. Suffering is drawn out past what's bearable. Even though Job took this stand of faith, it doesn't mean that his emotions are suddenly pleasant or even stable. Chapter 3 shows him going to the darkest of places, saying in about 10 different ways that he wishes he was never born. He considers his existence in this world as a twisted, disgusting, terrible reality. So if holiness always means pleasant tranquility, then Job is no role model. The fake aura of peace is popular among Christians because it often serves as a defense mechanism. We dull the intensity of our true emotions by defaulting to a forced coolness. Unfortunately, though, this only results in a dullness and a coolness toward God as well. It may be mistaken by some as godliness, but, you know, because you seem to to be able to handle all of life's trials with this seemingly um, unruffled confidence. But the absence of grief is often not a sign of maturity, but of a desperate attempt to escape pain and, and just rebuild the formerly safe world that we feel falling apart all around us. Now, everyone who's honest knows that raw grief is not so manageable. Now, God may very well bring you eventually to a place of peace and joy, but it it won't be without going through the valley first. C.S. Lewis wrote of the grief of losing his wife to cancer, and he said, This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. You go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It it might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. So, we see that the presence of disruptive emotions is not a sign by itself that you are unholy or out of control. It could be a very healthy sign that your heart is struggling with God because you feel a desperate need of him the reality of deep suffering is that there is no peace to be had and job owns that reality he can't in good conscience concede that his treatment is fair nor either can he walk away from the god that he loves job is suffering honestly because he's the same on the inside and the outside his words and his expressions match what's going on within and looking in on Job's honest suffering reveals to us our fourth point, how we are to respond to suffering, to seemingly senseless suffering. We are to wrestle with God, Do wrestle with God. Job has sincere devotion for God throughout this book, but it isn't pretty. Even though he's held up as an example in the rest of the Bible, an example of steadfastness, he, he doesn't exactly look like that to us, does he? We don't really see the patience Chapter after chapter, he's complaining bitterly. I'll read some excerpts just to make sure that we have a good taste of that. He says, Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Does it seem good to you to oppress to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target... His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. There are times when Job seems to be saying that God isn't just. There are times when he's, he almost seems to be God, uh, accusing God of pursuing him like a monster. But this isn't unique here in the Bible. Psalm 44 says, You've made us like sheep for the slaughter." You have sold your people for a trifle and made us a laughingstock among the peoples. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Psalm 88 says, Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Darkness has become my only companion." Clearly, the worship of God can and does include challenging God with your frustrations. And an underlying theme throughout Job's chapters is that he wants to put God on trial. He's sure that if he could just get some sort of hearing about all of this, then God would come clean about the injustice of it. The problem is he can't get that hearing. There's no such court. Even if he argued his case with God, he knows full well that God would somehow overpower him. Even so, Job keeps returning to this almost adversarial challenge in his talk to God and his talk about God. Now, there's a story out of Genesis 32 that's often overlooked, but it has massive importance for our identity as the people of God. In Genesis 32, so Jacob is alone in desperation one night, and we're told that um, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So here we've got what seems to be an Old Testament Christophany. Jacob wrestles with this mystery man for a long time, and the mystery man doesn't seem to play fair. He's touching Jacob's hip in a way that wounds him. But Jacob persists and demands a blessing. And the divine man then renames him, names him Israel, and blesses him. So Jacob goes away stunned, first of all, that he's interacted with God himself. And as the sun rises on Jacob... He has a new sense of identity and also a limp. It's interesting that the people of God here receive their name, Israel, which means he strives with God. Jacob's descendants, both biologically but also offspring of the faith, including us, we are to be those who strive with God. Can you see how similar this is to the story of Job? A man refuses to give up but strives with God until he receives a blessing and he leaves changed. Not only because his view of God has been far deepened, but also because he leaves with a limp. The book of Job ends with the Bible's longest recorded dialogue between God and mortal. And though Job's righteousness is confirmed by God and he is blessed again with the knowledge of God's approval, he would still leave with a limp. Nothing can remove the suffering altogether. Ten dead children, ongoing nightmares of terrors in the field, memories of being betrayed by his spouse and closest friends. The limp will be there. The Christian's suffering is never erased this side of eternity, though neither is it ever wasted. But all depends on the willingness to wrestle. At the end of the book, God states that Job has spoken rightly about him, not meaning that his tone and every nuance had been correct, but that compared with the worldview of his three friends, Job was wrestling in the right way and with the right concepts. He was sloppy, and he does come to realize that in chapter 42. He had nearly charged God with unrighteousness, but after jumping the curb, he swerves back into the lane, and he isn't faulted for it in the end. And it's really encouraging that God doesn't write Job off because of the excesses in his speech. God doesn't condemn us if, in our suffering, we confess our loss of hope, our sense of futility, if we frankly vent our despair about life itself. And there are many examples of honest and sometimes rash wrestling like this in the Bible. About 35 of the Psalms go there, as do the books of Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Lamentations, all in the process of wrestling for the blessing. But it's important to see what blessing Job is wrestling for. Job doesn't fixate on all the things that he lost. Remember, in the first chapter, Job attributes life, children, possessions to God. He freely gave them. He acknowledges God's sovereign right to withdraw them, as bitter as that is. But what is absolutely crushing for Job is the seeming loss of God in the midst of it all. Without God's friendship, there's no point to life. This is why Job says such accusatory things, almost obscene things to God. He he almost says he hates him. It's kind of like a drama where a woman is screaming at the man, I hate you, I hate you, why do you treat me like this? But the whole time, she's actually longing for him to draw near and prove that he does love her. Similarly, Job needs to know, is God for me or is he against me? Where is God in my suffering? Not because I really want to spit in his face, but because I want him more than anything that's been taken away, more than life itself. Now, there are moments of clarity when Job seems no longer concerned to win an argument about his bad treatment, but he only wants to reconnect with his long-lost friend. He says things like, call and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply to me. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Although Job accuses God of being unfair, he he yearns and he longs with all of his being to bring his case before him. And this is the mark of a true worshiper. Even when I can't understand what God is doing, I know it's God with whom I have to deal. Because he is God. Job may be wrong in his perception of God and of the reality of the situation, but he's deeply right in his heart and in the direction of his turning. Whenever unwise and untrue things are said by Job about God during the debate, Job never, never cuts off his relationship with God. In fact, Job wouldn't have agonized so deeply in those chapters if God had not meant so much to him. Is our faith strong enough so that when we're faced with excruciating suffering, we may lash out at God with hard questions, but we will never turn away from him. We can't check out. We can't refuse to engage with him. One scholar put it this way. It is in the dark struggles with God that we are surprised by his response to our anger and fear. What we receive from him during our difficult battle is not what we expect. We assume he wants order and conformity, obedient children. Instead, we find that he wants our passionate involvement and utter awe in the mystery of his glorious character. What does this look like? What does it look like to hope in God even as it feels like he's slain you? Well, Joni Erickson Tata writes this. When quadriplegia ambushed my life, it felt as though God were smashing me underfoot like a cigarette butt. Chronic pain on top of quadriplegia became the extra plate I could not handle, and my anger turned into deep despair. Those were nights I would thrash my head on my pillow, hoping to break it at some higher level and end my misery. Those were the mornings I refused to get out of bed. I told my sister, just close the drapes, turn out the lights, shut the door, leave me alone. Finally, after almost a year, I realized I couldn't face one more day of hopelessness. I cried out in anguish, God, if I can't die, please show me how to live. It was the prayer God was waiting for. After that, I would ask my sister to get me up, push me to the living room, and park my wheelchair in front of the music stand that held my Bible. Holding a mouth stick, I would flip this way and that, looking for answers, any answer. I would eventually learn, mainly through the book of Psalms, that God has his reasons even when it involves extra plates that make your world come crashing down. Yet our anger does not surprise him. It doesn't fluster him. He knows all about it. It was God's rage that nailed the Son of God to the cross. He gets anger. He wrote the book on it. And he invites people, people like you and me, to come and air our grievances and complaints to him. And the good news is you can do so without weakening your faith. So we see the right question in measuring our response to suffering is, am I moving toward God? Even if I'm moving toward him to just kind of pound on him with raised fists like a kid throwing a temper tantrum, am I moving toward God? Or am I moving away from him, giving up in actuality, even though I may still give him lip service and false piety for years to come? Job openly struggled with God and he also clung to God and he was commended for it in the end. And just as Joni taught, Tata hinted at, this type of striving with God is ultimately summed up in Jesus. He was a blameless believer like Job. He died a terrible death he did not deserve. In the midst of his trials and agonies, he wasn't rash or overstated like Job because, well, after all, he was sinless. But he strove with God Through it all. Hebrews tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. In Gethsemane, his struggle was so intense that he was sweating drops of blood. On the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the end, he, like Job, was vindicated. Our God has overturned pain by experiencing it. And Jesus, even more than Job, said of the Father with his life, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Job, like us, would do this imperfectly. He said some stupid things. He would feel stupid for it later. But our God far prefers those excesses than the subtle hardening of heart that happens when we merely sweep suffering under the rug and seek to plug up our emotions without truly involving the God we know could have prevented it. At no point does Job embrace numbness toward God in his heart or turn his back on him. Even his demand that God should present himself before Job and give an answer, that's a glimpse of the right cry of a believer seeking to find out what on earth God is doing throughout his unthinkable suffering. Job has shown that he serves the Lord with a pure heart. What about you? When it feels like he slays you, will you hope in him? Will you argue to his face? Or will you pretend as though Christ didn't open up the way to God's face for you? Will you basically reject him as your advocate by refusing to engage God in the midst of your pain? God is approachable God will vindicate you if you run to him with your anger and despair and dread. Now, some of you may need to revisit some some past hurts that you've just kind of pasted over and moved on without actually doing business with God. And my prayer is that you would reopen those areas and that you would wrestle and you'd find yourself more undone, but then also more truly consoled and comforted in the end.